We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. Really looks funny out there to see my glove out there, Jim. Jimmy Moore, get that yet. Okay. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? By cooperating together in these new realms of infinity. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 67 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. I recommend listening to episodes 65 and 66 before you listen to this episode. And now, Jiminy 6 and 7 with Wally Sherall, Tom Stafford, Frank Borman, and Jim Lovell. Part 3. From the previous episode, we have Jiminy 7 waiting in orbit for Jiminy 6A to launch and rendezvous. Jiminy 7 could only wait 14 days, the maximum duration of their flight. The goal was to launch Jiminy 6A within 9 days after Jiminy 7 launched. Back at the Cape, the first task was to prepare Pad 19 for the launch of Jiminy 6A. In fact, even while Jiminy 7 was resting on Pad 19 awaiting launch, Welders and repairmen had stood by. Borman and Lovell had barely started their booster-chasing exercise when the pad cleanup had begun. Here's a NASA clip on Pad 19 recycling. It's always taken about nine weeks, or 63 days, of actual work to clean up the pad, erect the booster, make the spacecraft, and check out the systems. We studied the problems... We found solutions, we streamlined the work effort, and within a couple of days, the whole atmosphere improved. With the planned 14-day flight, this gave us some margin, and the whole plan now appeared practical. The normal feeling of anticlimax after a launch was absent. If anything, the spirits may have seemed too high. Everyone was so excited you'd think they were going to launch the next day. John Albert recalled. The Martin crew found minimal damage to pad 19. Workmen wasted little time on normal painting or cleaning. Their objective was to replace critical instrumentation. The launch team got GLV-6 up and the spacecraft mated to it in one day, complete with standard procedures, tests, and review. In addition, Jiminy 7's radar transponder was interrogated as Borman and Lovell passed over Cape Kennedy to ensure that it would answer Jiminy 6A's radar transmissions. After 56 hours of the Borman-Lovell mission, rapid progress in getting Jiminy 6A ready fostered hopes that it might fly on the 8th day instead of the ninth day after launch of Gemini 7. A computer problem dampened these hopes briefly, but with a new part installed, the final simulated flight test started and ended without problems. On December 9th, Matthews and Funk were convinced 
that the launch could be made a day early. On Sunday, December 12th, astronauts Sherall and Stafford moved through the doors and into the couches of Spacecraft 6A for the second time. After a trouble-free countdown precisely at 9.54 a.m., their Gemini launch vehicle roared into action. The roar was quickly strangled. Gemini 2's hold kill seemed to be repeating. But this time, more critically, there were two men strapped atop the sputtering rocket. At 1.2 seconds, an electrical tail plug dropped from the base of the booster and activated a clock in the cockpit that was not supposed to start until the vehicle had lifted off. Because there had been no upward movement, the valves closed to prevent fuel from gushing into the launch vehicle's engines. The malfunction detection system had sensed something wrong and had stopped the engines. One of the most suspense-filled moments in the whole Gemini program followed. If ever there was a time to use the spacecraft ejection seats to get away from a cocked and dangerous rocket, this seemed to be it. Kenneth Height, chief of Gemini Escape Landing and Recovery Office and longtime ejection seat specialist, was surprised when the crew did not eject as they should have, if ground rules had been strictly followed. If the clock were right, then the vehicle had left the ground. Had it climbed only a few centimeters, the engine shutdown would have brought 136 tons of propellant encased in a fragile metal shell back to Earth. There could be no escape from the ensuing holocaust. But neither Sherall nor Stafford had sensed motion, and Sherall, who as command pilot, would have been the one to pull the D-ring for ejection, decided not to do it, despite the ticking clock. At the moment of crisis, the veteran test pilot remained calm. With no trace of emotion in his voice, Sherall reported, quote, Fuel pressure is lowering, end quote. Francis Carvey, the Martin launch vehicle test conductor, was just as matter-of-fact over the radio circuit to the spacecraft. Just a hint of panic might have caused Sherall or Stafford to pull the D-ring. Sherall replied with icy nerves on his own senses. He knew GLV-6 had not moved, and he knew the clock was wrong. Here's the audio. Silent sweeps around the world on their 111th revolution. The prime pilots for the Gemini 6 flight, Wally Sherrard and Tom Stafford, are now on their way to Launch Complex 19 to board their spacecraft. The launch of Gemini 6 is scheduled at the beginning of the 118th revolution of Gemini 7. T-minus 48 and all still going well with our Gemini 6 countdown here at Launch Complex 19. We've gone through a complete checklist once again and we are counting... We will have ignition at zero, and some three seconds after ignition, the launch vehicle will lift off on the start of the Gemini 6 flight. As Borman and Lovell pass over the Cape, the pursuit team of Sharon Stafford are about to launch. You're cleared for takeoff. Roger, scramble one. All right, here, adios. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. 
Ignition sparks. The engines rumble. In the cockpit, all lights are green. Suddenly. We have a shutdown, Jimmy Six. My clock has started. No, no liftoff. Verify program reset. No liftoff. Liftoff has failed. Should the crew eject or stay put? In a split second, they decide it's safer to stay put. A wise and courageous decision, as it turns out. When the smoke cleared, and it appeared that the booster was not going to explode, the erector was raised back up. Gunter Vint and his McDonald team hastened back to the white room that they had so recently left. After checking on the cabin pressure and making sure that the crew had safetied the seat pyrotechnics, Gunter Vint opened the hatches and helped the disappointed astronauts out of the spacecraft. Mission Control asked the crew of Gemini 7 if they had seen the ignition of Gemini 6A as they passed over the Cape. Here's the clip. Gemini 7, Houston. We were wondering if you saw the ignition at the Cape. We were in perfect position, but we never saw the ignition. We were waiting for the liftoff. Roger, apparently it was uh, on and off very quickly. We'll keep you informed. It was a great disappointment. We'd made two attempts to launch and still no liftoff. Let us know about the recycle as soon as you know. Will you please, Chris? Roger. They're talking Wednesday at the moment, but nothing uh, final yet. Very good. Siemens had been listening in at NASA headquarters in Washington. Once he was sure that the crew was safe, he went home. A call from Administrator Webb soon brought word that President Johnson was greatly disturbed by the failure. Siemens told Webb all was not lost. Gemini 7 still had six days in orbit. Time enough, he hoped, to find the source of the trouble and attempt to launch Gemini 6 again. In the meantime, Gemini 7 passed the endurance record for space travel. Gemini 7, Houston, do you still read us? Sorry to disturb your lunch, but we have a message here we think you'd be interested in. We're coming up on a special time here, about five seconds. Mark, you have just exceeded the world's manned space flight endurance record. Back at the Cape, the Martin and Air Force teams began recycling the booster for a launch to take place four days later. So far as they knew, the only thing wrong was a tail plug that had fallen out prematurely. A check through the records left no question that the plug had been properly twisted into its detents. But, testing revealed that some plugs did not fit as tightly as others and pulled out more easily. To fix this problem, a safety wire was added to the plugs, and it became standard for the remainder of the Gemini missions. As expected, reporters clamored for details about the engine shutdown. Merritt Preston was picked to tell them what NASA knew and what it planned to do. Known to the press as a spacecraft expert, Preston could not be expected to know all the technical details about the launch vehicle, 
and would be saved from having to guess. Although he winced at being placed on the firing line, his explanations at the news conference were well received and he was not pressured for answers. Reporters shared with Jiminy officials the belief that it was just a case of a plug pulling out. The malfunction detection system had worked as it should. The crew remained cool. There seemed every reason to believe that the launch could take place in four days. Aerospace engineers routinely examined the launch vehicle engine thrust trace data. The firing trace for Gemini 6A looked normal at the beginning, but some strange squiggles farther along on the graph suggested that the thrust had decayed before the plug dropped out. A call to John Albert called him as he was leaving for a meeting to discuss plans for the launch turnaround. He detoured to get a copy of the graph, which he took to the meeting. A telephone call was immediately placed to the Aerojet General Plant in Sacramento. A detailed analysis tentatively spotted the problem in the vicinity of the gas generator, but the trouble itself needed to be pinned down. By 7 o'clock that evening, December 12th, the Cape Aerojet engineers were searching the engine piece by piece. They worked all through the night without success. When Charles Matthews came by at 9 a.m. the next morning, their haggard and worried faces told him there had been no success. Just as he was asking what Aerojet intended to do now, an excited engineer came running in shouting that he had the answer. A dust cover that had accidentally been left in the engine. Months before, in the Martin Baltimore plant, the gas generator had been removed for cleaning. When the check valve at the oxidizer inlet was taken off, Martin technicians put a plastic cover in the gas generator port to keep dirt out. Later, that dust cover was overlooked when the unit was reinstalled. The relatively inaccessible location of the check valve on top of the engine, just under the tankage, where it could not be seen and all work had to be done using mirrors and touch, effectively prevented the errant cap from being discovered. Once the trouble was found, the gas generator was cleaned and replaced in Gemini Launch Vehicle 6A on December 13th. It had suffered no damage, but a question still lingered. Could Gemini 6A be launched in time to rendezvous with Gemini 7? At the time of the launch abort, recycling was expected to take four days, but within five hours of the failure, Elliot C. told the Gemini 7 crew that launch was targeted for the third day, December 15th. This took a mighty effort to reduce the 96-hour recycle time to 72 hours, but it was successful and the friendly target Gemini 7 was still waiting patiently in orbit. One question remained unanswered. When Sherall refused to pull the D-ring that would have ejected the Gemini 6A crew, was that a decision he alone would have made, or was that an indication that none of the astronauts would have used the ejection seats? 
The feelings expressed by the only Gemini pilots who faced that decision leave a measure of doubt. Stafford was concerned about the enormous acceleration an off-the-pad abort required to throw the seat in a stable trajectory far enough from the booster to do any good. It was up to 20 G's of acceleration. Even a mentally prepared astronaut might suffer severe injury. At best, Stafford believed he would have been walking around for months with a crick in his back, like those who had ejected in similar high-impulse Martin Baker seats. Of course, he would also be alive. And Chirol remarked, If that booster was about to blow, if we really had a liftoff and settled back on the pad, there was no choice. It was death or the ejection seats. Interestingly enough, early in the Gemini program, some thought was given to training Gemini crews on an ejection seat catapult at the Navy Air Crew Training Laboratory in Philadelphia. When a Navy test subject tried the facility and reported that it was no worse than being catapulted in a plane off a carrier, MSC officials decided it was not worth the effort. Warren J. North, Chief of Flight Crew Support Division, said that, generally speaking, the flight crews were all in favor of the ejection seats, in spite of the extremely high G-forces. Now let's move on to the launch of Gemini 6A. On December 15, 1965, the mood of those working on the rendezvous missions, the planners, the pilots, and the ground crew, was one of high anticipation. If, on this third attempt, Gemini 6A would cooperate and go into orbit, a truly significant world space first rendezvous might be chalked up. Russian endurance records had now been shattered in two successive American manned space missions, but achieving rendezvous would be navigationally significant to the Apollo program as well as important one-upmanship over the Soviets. Having a friendly target to approach, one that could point its transponder and talk back as Gemini 6A called out its course and speed, created an atmosphere of confidence. Here's the launch coverage of Gemini 6A. Mr. Kraft wants to launch at 8.27 Eastern Standard Time, so some four seconds before that we'll be looking for ignition. The spacecraft already is on internal power. All quiet on the communications at the present time. Out of my mark, 20 seconds. Mark. Go. Five, four, three, two, one. Trajectory looks very good.
Looks good from here, Gemini 6. Right down the line. Looks like a dream. Out of two doors are all zero. Gemini 6, you are go. Go. You hear the man. Go. Go ahead, can you reach Gemini 7? Roger, well, we did it. Roger, we saw them coming up. Okay, their orbit is 87 by 140. And here is the BBC news clip for the launch. At Cape Kennedy, the American spacecraft, Gemini 6, has finally succeeded in starting her journey towards the space rendezvous with Gemini 7, whose two astronauts have now been in space since December the 4th. They were actually able to watch the launch while they orbited. At 8.37 a.m., Gemini 6A arose from its path as if forcing it to move by willpower alone. Sherall urged, quote, For the third time, go! End quote. A moment of wonder followed as the launch vehicle seemed to shimmy. This shaking may have been only an impression because of their recent experience. Both pilots were highly attuned to movement and sound. At engine cutoff, Stafford checked the computer and got a reading of 7,830 meters per second. This told them they were on their way. Borman and Lovell in Gemini 7 saw Gemini 6A coming up, and they soon learned from the Canary Islands communicator that the orbital parameters of 6A were 161 by 259 kilometers. A few minutes later, as they flew over to Nainarive, Malagasy Republic, they saw 6A's contrail and got a brief glimpse of the visitor spacecraft. They put on their suits and waited for company to arrive. The rendezvous profile, dubbed M equals 4 by mission planners for convenience, the M had no special meaning, scheduled the catch-up to Gemini 7 during the fourth revolution of Gemini 6A. Sherall and Stafford faced six hours of maneuvering to reach Borman and Lovell. Now here's a clip from Sherall shortly after reaching orbit. Gemini 6, Canary, Capcom, how do you read over? Loud and clear, Canary. How are the 7 boys doing? Did they go over a while ago? They sure did. They're about five minutes ahead of you. Roger. Tell them we'll see them at the next station. I'll rather read you, Madden, sir. Uh, we have a Bermuda Vector for you. You're 87 by 140, uh, requiring an out-of-plane maneuver and a height adjust. At orbital insertion, the chase vehicle, Gemini 6A, trailed its target, Gemini 7, by 1,992 kilometers. Here is a clip from W.B. Evans of Gemini Mission Planning explaining what Gemini 6A had to do first to achieve rendezvous. The first maneuver will be a height adjustment required due to a 7 foot per second underspeed at insertion. Gemini 6's actual apogee altitude is 140 nautical miles. The required apogee altitude is 146 nautical miles. To correct this condition, the command pilot will perform a height adjustment maneuver at the end of the first orbit 
using his aft-firing thrusters. The Gemini 6A crew aligned the inertial platform to position their spacecraft for a height adjustment. Over New Orleans, at 94 minutes in space, Chiral ignited the thrusters to speed up by 4 meters per second. The perigee remained the same, but the acceleration kicked the apogee up to 272 kilometers. Gemini 6A, being nearer to the Earth and moving faster, now lagged only 1,175 kilometers behind Gemini 7. Here's W.B. Evans explaining the next maneuver. Gemini 7 is now here in a 161 nautical mile circular orbit. Gemini 6 is now here 560 miles behind Gemini 7 in an orbit having an apogee of 146 nautical miles and a perigee of 87 nautical miles. In this present orbit, Gemini 6 would catch up with Gemini 7 in approximately two hours. To allow the rendezvous to occur as planned, the catch-up rate will be slowed by two maneuvers. The first maneuver will be at second apogee applied in a posigrade direction to raise the perigee to 117 nautical miles. Near Carnarvon, at 2 hours 18 minutes ground elapsed time, Chiral began a phase adjustment. This had a twofold purpose to reduce the distance to the target and to raise the chase vehicle's perigee to 224 kilometers. He pressed the button to add 19 meters per second to his velocity. The next maneuver is a plane change. Here's W.B. Evans. We cannot expect both spacecraft to be in the same, exactly the same orbital plane. Therefore, at 2 hours and 42 minutes after liftoff, Gemini 6 command pilot Wallace Yaraw will yaw his spacecraft to the south and execute a plane change maneuver that will place his spacecraft exactly in the same orbit with Gemini 7. Over the Pacific, less than half an hour later, Chiral turned his spacecraft 90 degrees to the right, southward, and ignited the thrusters to push Gemini 6A into the same plane as Gemini 7. Now the distance between the two vehicles had narrowed to 483 kilometers. Here's Wally Chiral after the plane change. Gemini 6, Hawaii, Capcom. How you doing up there? Very good. Complete the plane change burn. No residuals. The fuel remaining is 75%. Okay. Three hours and 15 minutes into the mission, Elliot C. told Chiral that radar contact should soon be possible with Gemini 7. The 6A crew got a flickering radar signal, then a solid lock on at 434 kilometers range. Over Carnarvon, at 3 hours and 47 minutes, the aft thrusters fired for 54 seconds to add 13 meters per second to Gemini 6A's speed. The result was almost a circle, measuring 270 by 274 kilometers. 
In slant range distance, the two spacecrafts were now 319 kilometers apart and closing slowly. Chiral and Stafford placed Gemini 6A in the computer, or automatic rendezvous mode, at 3 hours and 51 minutes into the flight. While the lower orbiting vehicle gained slowly on its target, Chiral dimmed the lights on his side of the spacecraft to improve outside visibility. At 5 hours 4 minutes, he exclaimed, quote, My gosh, there's a real bright star out there. That must be Cirrus. End quote. In fact, the star he saw was Gemini 7, reflecting the sun's rays from 100 kilometers away. Gradual catch-up of the target vehicle lasted until 5 hours and 16 minutes. Chiral prepared to make the last rendezvous maneuvers. Here's WB explaining the next maneuvers. When the slant range distance between Gemini 6 and Gemini 7 has been reduced to approximately 32 nautical miles, Gemini 6 will initiate the first of a series of thermal phase maneuvers. These maneuvers are accomplished by the command pilot placing the nose of his spacecraft at his target, Gemini 7, and thrusting along the line of sight. There will be two mid-course correction maneuvers, probably here and here. These maneuvers will place him on a trajectory that will be slightly below and in front of Gemini 7. At this point, he will perform a velocity match or braking maneuver that will bring about rendezvous. When he has completely matched the velocity of Gemini 7, he will station keep for several orbits. However, he will not dock. The two spacecrafts were now close enough to allow Spacecraft 6 to thrust directly toward Spacecraft 7. Wally fired the thrusters and closed in on Gemini 7 at a rate of better than 3 kilometers every minute and a half. Chiral and Stafford briefly lost sight of Gemini 7 when it passed into darkness, but soon picked up the target's running lights. Chiral made two mid-course corrections spaced 12 minutes apart. Six minutes later, at a range of 900 meters from his target, Chiral began braking his spacecraft by firing the forward thrusters. Soon he had no difficulty seeing Gemini 7. Fittingly, in the terminal stage of rendezvous, the 6A astronauts saw the stars Castor and Pollux, in the Gemini constellation, aligned with their sister ship. Then Spacecraft 7 flashed into the sunlight, almost too bright to look at. From a distance of 200 meters, it resembled a carbon arc light. Following the braking and translation maneuver, 6A coasted until the two vehicles were 40 meters apart, with no relative motion between them. Here's a clip of Wallace Chiral making the final rendezvous maneuvers. 300 feet, we're directly below them. 180 feet. 120 feet. Holding 120 feet, Wallace. Ask them what their range is now. About 20 feet. Yeah, we're sitting up here playing bridge together. Formation was seven. Everything is go here. 
The world's first manned space rendezvous was now a fact. In mission control, the cheering throng of flight controllers waved small American flags, while Kraft, Gilruth, and others of the jubilant crowd lit cigars and beamed upon this best of all possible worlds. At 2.33 p.m., December 15, 1965, Gemini 6A had rendezvous with Gemini 7. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.